morning. Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Hebrews together. And if you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, we'd like everybody to have a Bible. And there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll get one into your hands. And uh, then you can not only hear the Word of God, but follow along with your own eyes. That allows the Word to have an even deeper impact upon our lives. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home as a gift from the Lord uh, today. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, speaking of Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray because he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself. But he who was called by God, just as Aaron was. And so also, Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Who, speaking of Jesus as our high priest, in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him to who, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of salvation to all who obey him. Beautiful passage. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Savior, and we thank you for your Father's heart that was willing to send him in order that we might be saved and forgiven, Lord, and then not only that, but to be brought into this wonderful relationship with you. We want to thank you as a church family for what you did in our life this week. That you didn't let go of us. You've been faithful to us, Lord, this week. You taught us so many things. You're so active in our life. And we really appreciate that. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for every revelation and every portrait that you have given us in your word of yourself and of Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that you'd freshly fill us now with your Holy Spirit And give us the capacity, a supernatural capacity, to absorb and to appreciate, Lord, this beautiful description of Jesus as our high priest. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this section of the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews goes into great detail in describing Jesus 
as our high priest. He's going to do this for several chapters, and we're going to concentrate most of what we learn related to that here this morning. So there's something about Jesus being our high priest that is very, very important to the writer that we understand. And not only important to the writer, but very, very important to the Holy Spirit. There's something that we need to understand about Jesus as our high priest and what that means practically for our lives, given the fact that right now, concerning every Christian, he is functioning as a high priest on our behalf. Now, the imagery of a high priest has its origin in the Old Testament law of Moses. Moses' brother, Aaron, was the first high priest of the children of Israel. High priests were descendants of Aaron and of that bloodline. And the function of the high priest was principally twofold. The first function was to represent God before the people by living a holy, obedient life. He was a representative of God before the people as he ministered on behalf of God so that people would be able to look at him and in some way say, we have a sense of the holiness and the nature of God by watching this high priest. The second function of the high priest was to represent the people before God. And he did that, the high priest did that by, uh, through intercession and prayer and the offering of sacrifice. So it was the priest's way of coming and saying, now as he would intercede for the people, as he would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, he would then uh, turn in one office, he is representing God and facing the people. The next one, he turns away from the people, and now he's representing the people and facing God through intercession and through the offering of sacrifices. Now, the Old Testament office of high priest was established by God in order to prepare God's people for the day when the Messiah would come into the world and the Messiah would accomplish those same two functions in an even greater way, which Jesus has done. Of the twofold function of the priest fulfilled in himself, Jesus said concerning representing God before man, Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, you don't get any better than that in terms of representing uh, God before man. And then concerning representing man before God in prayer, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8 and he said, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. You realize Jesus is interceding for you right now and for me. Later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verse 25, the writer declares, Therefore he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. And all of that has Old Testament imagery. It speaks of Jesus fulfilling the twofold function of the priest in the Old Testament. Now, God's establishment of the office of a high priest in the Old Testament was also intended to communicate that there's a separation between God and man due to sin. 
And there's a separation between God and man that requires a mediator, a go-between, in order for us to have a relationship with God. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, only the high priest could perform certain functions or offer certain sacrifices. Nobody else could do it. And so the very office of the high priest was established by God to prepare the Jews and the world for the day when he would send a Messiah, a Savior, into the world who would then take up the mantle of a high priest, fulfill the office in a way that no Old Testament priest could ever fulfill it, and to then become the mediator between God and men that no Old Testament priest ever could be. And of course, Jesus, of course, that Messiah, that Savior was and is none other than Jesus himself who taught concerning himself of this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And as the Holy Spirit declared through the Apostle Paul, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. All of this comes from this Old Testament imagery, and all of the Old Testament imagery was given as a picture of the coming Messiah and in order to prepare God's people for the greater work that the Messiah would do. Now, in this passage of Scripture, the writer gives us four reasons why Jesus alone is a great high priest. No high priest in the Old Testament was ever called a great high priest. But here we see in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus is described for us as a great high priest. And so four reasons why Jesus alone is a great high priest and four ways in which, as a high priest to God's people, he's superior to the Old Testament priesthood related to Aaron and, and his descendants. And this is written in order to help these wavering Hebrew believers to realize that if they returned to the religious system in the old covenant of their fathers, that they would be exchanging a great high priest that they currently have in Jesus for a lesser high priest. And so we look at this, the book of Hebrews, and I certainly don't apologize for it in any way, but it, it can get technical a little bit. Um, and, and it is very much built on some kind of an understanding of, of the Old Testament. But what we're looking at this morning, and I hope that it comes across in this way, is not like just some kind of a technical thing related to Jesus as the high priest and all of these kind of things, and we get lost five minutes into all of this. The writer of the book of Hebrews intends that we would absorb this and process this very, very devotionally. This is a very significant and a very, very important revelation of Jesus to us as Christians that's important that we understand about him because it'll translate into our relationship with him and cause us to have a deeper relationship than we would otherwise have without this revelation. Someone has written... No one ever stressed the greatness of Jesus like the writer of the book of Hebrews. I'll tell you, it'd be hard to, it would be hard to argue with that. 
The book is deep in a lot of ways, but it is a very majestic book in how it elevates and describes, portrays Jesus uh, to us. Jesus is better is the theme of the book, and he is better in any and all ways than any religious or anything religious or secular that we would ever be tempted to abandon him for. So the first of these four that makes him superior, verse 14, is that he has passed through the heavens. In other words, our high priest, Jesus, our great high priest, presently sits in heaven. And he is the very Son of God, the writer tells us, and he is sitting in the presence of the Father right now, indeed at the Father's right hand. So you talk about having uh, friends in high places. You say, I don't have any friends, let alone a friend in high places. You have a friend in the highest place as a Christian. The greatest friend a person can ever have is sitting at the right hand of God the Father for you. So we have a high priest that is sitting in that place. The closest that Aaron or any of the other high priests came to God was once a year on the Day of Atonement when he would enter into the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies represented the presence of God in the tabernacle, later in the temple, and he would go in there on the Day of Atonement, and he would only go into that Holy of Holies on that one day after offering a sacrifice for his own sin. And we remember that that, as we looked a few weeks ago, that the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple, that these were mo- this was a model given to Moses of heaven itself. So, here you, you, you've, you've got this Old Testament priest. He ministered in a God-given model of heaven while Jesus <laughs> fulfills his ministry as the high priest in heaven itself. And the point that the writer is making is that Jesus is in heaven and these other high priests were not and are not. And that Jesus has an access to God the Father that no one else has ever had and no one else can have. So when he operates as a high priest and he intercedes for you and me, you can't have anyone interceding with a greater intimacy with God the Father than he has. Jesus has an access to the Father and thus an ability to intercede for us that the Old Testament priests never even dreamed about possessing for themselves, let alone for anyone else. Now, the friends and the family members of these Jewish believers who are trying to pull them back into the uh, Old Covenant and the religion of of their fathers, they're trying to uh, convince them if is, is they... they uh, uh, to, to return to that old covenant, and, and they would have probably made the argument that what are you doing with this following Jesus and Jesus as a high priest? Come back to the system where we've got a you-can-see-with-your-own-eyes high priest. You can touch him with your own hands, high priest. That's a high priest that you need, something that you can relate to as it relates to the, the physical uh, senses. And... And uh, so this would have been 
the argument that they would have made. Who is your high priest? Who represents God before you and you before God? And the writer's answer is Jesus. And that just because you cannot see our high priest doesn't mean that he isn't functioning as a high priest. And the fact is that the fact that we cannot physically see him or touch him is no argument against his effectiveness as our high priest, but rather it testifies to his greater effectiveness, that we do not see him with the naked eye, we do not touch him with our hands, because he is in a greater place to function as a high priest for each of us. And so the first evidence of Jesus' superiority as a high priest is that he functions in that role in heaven itself. That makes him very distinct from the Old Testament priests. And this was the writer's way of saying, why would you leave this high priest, go back to a descendant of Aaron as someone to represent God before you and you before God? Stop and think about it, the superiority of Jesus in all ways, but even as a high priest. Second, he tells us in verse 15 that Jesus is superior because he is a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses in a way that nobody else can, not even the Old Testament priests could sympathize with the weaknesses of the men and the women that they were serving and ministering to, God's people, they could not, the best of them, could not sympathize with us as God's people in the same way that Jesus does. And what is the source of this sympathy that Jesus has for us regarding our weaknesses? He tells us that it comes out of the fact that he, Jesus, was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I can sympathize with you concerning something that you're experiencing in life without having experienced it myself. But I can only sympathize so far. You can only fully sympathize with someone who if you only if you have gone through that same experience yourself. And the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. This communicates two really important things to us. Number one, he was tempted with every temptation we're tempted with. There's no temptation you face, no temptation that I face, to be disobedient to God, to engage in sin, no temptation that any of us face that Jesus did not personally experience himself. The whole broad gamut of temptation, the whole kit and caboodle of temptation he experienced, whether it was physical, including all of the obvious things that we recognize as sin, all of the kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll kinds of sins, he, w- he faced temptation related to all of that. But then also temptation emotionally to discouragement or to fear or to sinful anger. 
or the sin of the mind. Uh, He faced the temptation of frustration or the desire for revenge or impatience with other people. And then number two, we're told here that he not only was tempted with every temptation that we're tempted with, but that he felt the power and and the pull of those temptations as fully as we did. That's something to think about. We all know how strong the pull or the temptation to sin is. And those one, two, three, four, five, whatever number of areas that are the strongest temptations for us in life. Jesus not only was tempted by everything that we are tempted by and experienced that temptation, but he experienced in the, experienced it with the full pull and power pulling on him that we experience in our own lives. That's, that's amazing. And, and the writer is telling us, in other words, that he understands what we go through in temptation and, and he has sympathy upon us because he has experienced all of these obstacles that we face as God's children and trying to live a holy life in this world. He understands what we face, what we're up against, uh, up against. And there isn't any temptation that we will ever face or experience except he knows exactly what we're talking about having faced it himself. We don't have to pray and say, now, Lord, when this thing comes up over here, this is how I feel about it. And I know that you wouldn't know anything about that because you're so holy and all. (laughs) No, he experienced the temptation. He knows it as well as we know it and as well as we could ever explain it. uh, uh, to, uh, to him. Now, that's the kind of high priest that you want to have representing you before the Father, and that's the kind of high priest that we have uh, interceding for us before our, our Heavenly Father. No temptation that he doesn't understand fully that we are facing. And none of the Old Testament priests could ever say that. Because you've got a high priest in the Old Testament, he's a certain kind of man with a certain kind of background, with a certain kind of personality. So maybe he gets raised in a very, very strict religious environment all of his life. He doesn't get exposed in his childhood to pornography. He doesn't get exposed to drug use or alcohol before he's even a teenager. He doesn't get exposed to this, 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 and this. And you fill in the blanks. And so here somebody comes from a different other place in life than the place that the high priest has come from, and that high priest is going to have to fight very, very hard not to look down on the person that he's ministering to and ministering for because he doesn't understand how in the world a person could ever become entangled in those, those kinds of sins. He can try and understand, but he cannot understand by virtue of background. And not only on the virtue of background, but on the virtue, uh, by virtue of personality. Here you have this person over here, and we're all different. I'm not putting one down or elevating the other, but you have a certain kind of person. Let's say you got the whole, here's an emotional bandwidth. Width. And here's this guy, and he lives right there. Ladies, some of you are married to him. 
And he, ne- he never gets out of that two inches of that, that bandwidth. He lives in 5% of the human experience emotionally. And then you got another person over here comes into the world. Their eyes are like as big as this looking around, you know, right out of the womb. You can see they're going to touch and feel and experience. Everything's going to be a draw to them, you know. And they come out, and I mean everything in the whole world has attracted them emotionally. They're all over the place, and, they don't, and they've got to learn every bit of discipline they ever earn in their life. They ever learn in their life is going to have to be learned. None of it comes naturally to them. And then here's this guy as the high priest. He's never going to be able to relate fully to where this other guy's coming from. And so he's never going to be able to sympathize in the same way that Jesus can sympathize because Jesus experienced all of it. He understands the whole broad everything related to personality and related to our lives. And so Jesus was tempted with every temptation we're tempted with, and he felt the power and the pull of those temptations as fully as we do. And because of that, he understands what we face in this world, and he sympathizes with us as a result. I say, thank you, Lord. He has pity on us. He knows this isn't an easy place for a child of God in this fallen world. Now, someone might be tempted to protest and say, how can Jesus know what it's like to face the same temptations to sin and all of their power if, as the Son of God, he wasn't capable of sin? Oh, so look who's the big theologian now. It's a good question. It's a very good question. Two things concerning this. It's important to realize that this passage does not teach that Jesus can sympathize with our wrongdoing because he never experienced that. It says he can sympathize with are temptations. Those are two entirely different things. The passage, and then secondly, additionally, a case can be made that only the one who does not yield to sin can fully know the full intensity of temptation. Here you have a man or a woman who every time they're tempted to sin... They hold out for five minutes and then they cry uncle and they give into the sin and into the temptation and they embrace the sin and the temptation. And what happens? The power of the pull of the temptation is broken off at that moment. But Jesus, because he was incapable of sinning, he never even had the option to break off the temptation. So he experienced the power and the pull of temptation in every conceivable way that it can occur in the human experience to the nth degree until he broke the power of the temptation. So the devil was unsuccessful. In other words, he knows more about resisting temptation and what's required in order to do that than any of us in this room all put together could, could experience or be able to communicate. 
The fact that he could not sin makes him understand the power of sin and the way none of us know in our own life. So it doesn't disqualify him in any way in his role as a priest, but makes us realize that he is more amazing than we could even realize. That brings us then to the writer's third point in verse 16, that as our high priest, but also as our the sacrifice for the full and satisfying payment for our sin, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus has turned the throne of God into a throne of grace. That's what he's done. That's a big deal. To take the throne of a holy, almighty God and to turn that throne into a throne of grace for sinners. That was no small work. And Jesus is our high priest, is the one who accomplished that. And Jesus provides every disciple of his, no matter how simple we are, no matter how unknown or, uh, or poor or anonymous or well-known we are, he provides each of us with an access to God that was com- not only completely unknown to the Old Testament saints, but completely unknown even to the high priest. Again, the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies one day out of the whole year. And the Holy of Holies was only a representative place of the very presence of God. And Jesus has opened up the throne room of God to every Christian in an amazing way. We can come to God on our own through prayer. Anytime we want. No lambs, no sacrifices, no human priests, no religious systems, no special temple, no special location. And not only that, but we can come before the throne of God boldly. And I think about that, the ability to come in boldly or with confidence in prayer before the throne of God. I always think about the picture, at least from my childhood, of a lack of confidence before a throne in the Wizard of Oz when the scarecrow comes before Oz before they find out he's just this little fraud with a big machine out there and the scarecrow's falling all over. And I mean, that's really... If you want to take how a sinful person should be able to, to attempt to approach the throne of God without this high priest, the scarecrow not only walks into the room trembling, but he ends up being a pile of ashes before it's all said and done. It's amazing the access that we have. And not just a freedom to go to God in prayer, but to go confidently and to have a boldness without uh, uh, any kind of fear of rejection or judgment, and that we can come before God any time, morning, noon, or night. I can come to God once a day. I can come to God in prayer a thousand times a day. I can access that throne any time I want as a child of God. Think about that. 
I could pray one time a day or I could pray all through the day. That's the kind of access that we have. Amazing access that we have to that throne. Something that the Old Testament saints would have just fried their mind to even think about. And then when we come to God in prayer, this verse 16 tells us that we discover that His throne is a throne of grace. Think about what that means to us. Again, as we just think about our walk with the Lord, I never doubt that God will welcome me at His throne, even when I'm a bad boy. I always know He's going to welcome me when I come to Him in prayer. Now, I may get a spanking, but I, I never doubt that I have access to that throne. Not because of who I am and what I am, because of the greatness of my high priest. And that he's not only the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice at the same time that gives us that kind of, of an access. To think about the fact that God's happy to listen to us. He's happy to talk to us. And then the writer tells us not only that, but then to dispense to us all of the mercy and the grace and the help that we need. So it's not like God says, all right, you can come up here. You can access me through prayer, talk with me, you know, offload all of your problems and all of your needs, and I'm just like this big listening ear, $500 an hour. But I'm as powerless to deal with your problems as you are. God, we not only have the access, but then in response to our prayer, God dispenses Himself, He dispenses whatever grace and mercy and help He knows we need from Him for the circumstance that we have just talked over with God ourselves. And that, the writer is telling us, we can expect every single time we pray, that throne is an unlimited source of grace and mercy for our lives. And only Jesus provides that kind of confident boldness for a sinful man in a relationship with a holy God. We must never, ever lose as Christians our awe over the access that we have to God through prayer. Never, ever, ever take that for granted. Never, ever, I mean, we, we ought to just hand out kazoos and party poppers, you know, the, the streamers, every time we're going to pray. It, just, it should be an unbelievable celebration, even in our heart, before we start to even pray, that we have this kind of unimaginable access to God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Think about that. <clears throat> Excuse me related to our lives. Incredible access. Now, I, if I was invited to come before a throne of like a king or a queen, I wouldn't know how to conduct myself. They'd have to train me how to curtsy and come in backwards and leave backwards and however they do that. Don't turn your back on the king or the queen or whatever it might be. But I'd be a mess if I got invited to somebody's throne room, just a mere human being's throne room. And the biggest reason wouldn't be because of curtsies and this kind of thing, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't know their heart toward me. I wouldn't know what's going to happen to me in this room that I've been summoned uh, into. But all day, every day, as God is my witness, and I know it's true of you, 
I go before God in prayer without the slightest hesitation. I, I, don't, even, I don't even pause for a, a half a second of hesitation before I pray. When I need that access, I head right into it in, in, in talking with the Lord. And I'm always confident, and God wants us to be that, uh, that grace and mercy and help awaits us there at the throne of God. Why do I possess that kind of a confidence? Why do we possess that kind of confidence? Because Jesus is my high priest and Jesus has made the God who sits on that throne to become my heavenly father, to be my Abba father, my daddy, spiritually speaking, with the greatest of respect and awe. But that's the kind of intimacy that we have with God, and that is the heart of God toward us. Because we did the greatest thing we could ever do to bless his heart and become a part of his family, and that is to put his, our trust in his son for the forgiveness of our sins. That doesn't just benefit us. That doesn't just glorify Jesus. It glorifies and it blesses the heart of God the Father. And we have done that. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you haven't done that, you need to do that. And you have an opportunity to do that with men and women who will be up in front after the service to pray and to receive Christ and receive all of this that we're talking about. But it means a lot to the Father that there came a point in time that you trusted in His Son to become a part of His family. Just amazing. And then finally, notice that as the Son of God, chapter 5, verse 9, that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation. Now, no Aaronic high priest could ever make that claim. They could point people to God in the same way that this is what God has called me to do. I'm called to point people to God, not to be God to anybody or become a mediator or build a dependency upon my life among God's people. And I certainly can't provide salvation for anyone. So no high, no high priest could do that. The best that a high priest could do is point people to God, but Jesus alone has provided us with an eternal salvation. Why? Because he was uniquely qualified to do so. Because he paid the price that was required to do so. And I want you to notice the insights that the writer gives us into the price that Jesus paid in order for us to, uh, in order to provide us with this eternal salvation. In verse 7, he makes note of the prayers that Jesus offered up in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before his crucifixion. Jesus said, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, thinking of the cross the next day, where he would become sin. And I cried, He bore all of my sin, all of its dirtiness and all of its filthiness and all of the shame that's attached with it. And I'm just one person out of how many billion in the world today, let alone how many billions have lived in human history. So on that cross, he bore our sin. And that was, that was going to be something that he was going to do. But I think even more than that, that separation between the Father and the Son, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, as he cried out on the cross, when he bore our sin. 
And so this something that happened in that relationship between the father and the son, as he looked at all of it approaching the next day, he said, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here are these Hebrew Christians being tempted to abandon Christ because of the great price, legitimately so, that they are paying to be faithful to the Lord. And the writer of the book of Hebrews reminds them of the great price that Christ paid in order for them to have a relationship with, uh, with God and for them to be saved. And it's good to be reminded of that. And, and, and yet we're told in verse 8 that despite all of the suffering, it would require for the forgiveness of our sins that Jesus obeyed the Father in going to the cross and he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's a curious kind of phrase. People wonder about that. Well, how could Jesus learn obedience? Was he disobedient? And then he had to learn obedience? That's the way that I learn obedience. I was disobedient over here. Ooh, There's consequences to that. So I learned obedience. I learned obedience out of the disobedience. I try to learn obedience out of obedience, but I'm not that smart. Most of what obedience I learn, I learn out of disobedience in your life, by the way, not mine. I wasn't talking about myself. So it doesn't mean that he was disobedient previously and was cured of it in his incarnation and coming into the world. It means that Jesus experienced things as a result of his incarnation coming into this world that he would never otherwise have known or learned if he had remained in heaven. And namely, to come to know firsthand experientially the price that is paid in order to obey God in the fallenness of this world. If he had never come into this world in the way that he did, he would have never learned obedience, that is to learn it experientially, experienced what is required to obey God in the fallenness of this environment. And then you notice in verse 9 it speaks of uh, Jesus as high priest and having been perfected. That's another curious thing. Was Well, he was perfected as a result of, of all of this. Having been perfected, this mean he wasn't perfected previously? It doesn't mean that Jesus hadn't been perfect before being born into the world because he was perfect. The word perfected, it means to be made complete. And the point is that Jesus could have never been fully qualified to be our Savior if He had remained in heaven. Apart from His incarnation, His coming into this world, being born into this world, and His death and His burial and His resurrection and His ascension, only in doing all of that did He become perfected or complete or fully qualified to be our Savior. If He hadn't done that, He would not have been qualified to be our Savior. And the writer knows that any Christian who understands these four things about, and these four things alone about Jesus as our high priest, will never abandon him for any other priesthood because any other priesthood is a lesser priesthood. And that's why 
his exhortation of chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. There's nothing better out there in the secular world or the religious world than who and what we have in Christ. Jesus is better in any and all ways than any other priest, anything else in the whole wide world that we might be tempted to abandon him for. And so here we have these four great truths or revelations concerning Jesus as our high priest. And sometimes I look at a passage like this. You say, okay, one, two, three, four, all of them are beautiful in their own way and, and all. And so I, my intent this morning is just to kind of, uh, sometimes when I was a kid and I would go uh, to an older person's house and, uh, you know, when you're a kid, everybody's older, above a certain age. And so, oh boy, you know, I mean, Mick Jagger just didn't even want to live beyond 30 and uh, now look at him. He's 180 years old. I've got to give him credit. I mean, there is no facelift on that boy's face at all. So you find, you find cause for respect where you can. He's, those are some old wrinkles he's got. And, and that's fine. I respect that in older people. But I remember as a kid... Well, I've just ruined the whole sermon, basically. But I remember as a kid going to older people's houses, and very often they would have a jar uh, of hard candy. It wasn't my favorite. I liked, like, chews. But you take what you can get as a kid. So they'd offer you that hard candy, and you pop it into your mouth, and don't you chew that. You suck on that. Don't you chew it. And, uh, and you just put it in your mouth, and you just kind of savor it. And that's the idea, these four great things related to the high priest to just take them for a walk or just to sit down and just think about them and just savor them, that our high priest sits in heaven. Wow. That he sympathizes with us. What kind of a price tag do you put on that? That he has turned the throne of God into a throne of grace for sinners. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. And only he did it. And that he has provided us with an eternal salvation. What a high priest. Why would we leave him for anything? Again, religious or secular or whatever. We've got it all and more in him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you so much for our high priest. We thank you for Jesus this morning. And we thank you, Lord, those of us who know you, that these are not just truths on a printed page. These are our daily experience with you. And for some, Lord, it's been their experience for weeks, and others of us, it has been our experience with you for decades. And we thank you for how rich we are to know you in this way, to have these kind of blessings in our life, all because, Father, both you and Jesus were willing to make the sacrifice, to make all of it possible. And we just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to live this Christian life 
We thank you so much for that privilege. And Lord, there's nothing in this whole wide world. Things try to rise up and and get our attention, but there's nothing in this world that compares to you. You make everything just really grow faint and dim in comparison to what we learn about you in this passage. And I pray that our time in your word today would produce within each of our hearts such a gratitude and understanding of how good you've been to us in Jesus that it would make every attempt by the devil in the world to pull us away absolutely ineffective. Thank you, Lord, for the Christian life. Thank you for allowing us to live it and to know you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you to begin a relationship with God in which God becomes all of this and more to you.